Web3 is powerful but difficult to work with. Deploying blockchain nodes, accessing data, and performing staking operations are non-trivial engineering actions. To simplify Web3, Anchor hosts APIs for node deployment, RPC, and staking. Josh Neuroth from Anchor joins the show to talk about modern Web3 infrastructure. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. You're working on Anchor, and it is a system of tools for improving access to, you could call it, Web3 infrastructure. and I think Web3 has been accessible for a pretty long time at this point, you know, arguably six years since Ethereum got started. But the higher level tools, the APIs and the infrastructure is just now entering its more mature stage. Can you talk about the necessary building blocks for getting to a higher level, more accessible set of web three tools yeah definitely so the most fundamental piece in web three is really node access and a node is just simply the application that's running that blockchain that's sitting on a server somewhere so anyone can run their own node you can go download a node client like go ethereum which is commonly just called geth there's some other ones like the aragon client for ethereum or, or there's, there's like four or five more now, and they increasingly more node clients. But running a node, you can run a node if you're using Ethereum or some or an Ethereum virtual machine capable chain. You can always run your own node. And historically, you know, projects have started kind of running their own nodes. We saw early on that consensus. You know, was started by one of the Ethereum co-founders. One of the products that consensus offers has been Infura is effectively building an API that runs on top of a cluster of nodes. And that's also what we do at Anchor as well. And so we've seen really just a lot of developer tools that uh, frankly just sit on top of like clustered node technology that make it easy for developers to just like one click or, you know, some kind of command line in the CLI that gives you access to, to nodes. And so that is kind of the most fundamental building block of, of I'd say web three infrastructure is node access. And, when I say node access, these are usually called full nodes. They're not validators. Validators build consensus, you know, on the blockchain. But everyone that's building anything needs to talk to the blockchain, send transactions, or uh, query data. On-chain data would use a node access for that. And when you think about the the older pieces of infrastructure, like Infura, or at this point even Alchemy. Uh, Alchemy's been around for a while. Can you outline in a little more detail what the older services have offered for a while and what some of the newer pieces of infrastructure are doing in contrast? Yeah. So I think ultimately, if you think about Infura or Alchemy, you know, these are effectively web two business models where effectively just very similar to AWS, right? Where there's a subscription or a pay-as-you-go model. And as a developer, if you need access to these, you're literally just signing up for a pay-as-you-go subscription. There's no really governance from the Web3 community embedded into that. There's no way to pull that value back into the community. And historically, for both Infura and Alchemy, we've seen 
they're kind of exclusively backed by venture capitalists and there's really no way for the community to capture that. And so as you're building out these developer platforms or as the community, I should say, builds out these developer platforms, I think we need to think about governance from a community standpoint. We need to think about decentralization because we're taking a decentralized system and we're frankly centralizing it in order to build these like high performance developer tools. And so, you know, one thing we've done at Anchor and we're working on is we're frankly just trying to, we started as a centralized service provider and we're moving into becoming more of a protocol that's decentralized, that's community governed. And the community's setting everything from the payout to node providers to the prices that the, you know, the API is charged to developers. And so, you know, I think that that's like one big concept that we are still kind of gathering our heads around in the Web3 space is this idea of being a platform versus a protocol. And so platforms, you know, we've seen these in Web2. There is a playbook for building a platform, a lot of focus. You know, you kind of use the same venture back, Series A, Series B, Series C, you know, try to get as much traction as you can. And then, you know, capture that and maybe have an exit or an IPO or something like that versus a protocol that is decentralized, that is community governed, that just can't be, you know, shut down by a board member or something like that. So in the case of Anchor, there are uh, some building blocks that your team has built. And I think the place to start is with RPC endpoints. Yep. So if I want to interface with various networks like we talk about ethereum avalanche cello near protocol polygon all these different networks like what is the in the api spec for how we can interface with these different networks what are the different calls we can make out to these networks yeah great question so first and foremost you know there is in order to build like an api endpoint like when we talk, I'm going to kind of go back to the centralization versus decentralization before I answer your question. Like, in order to create a single API endpoint, that is going to be, I guess, in a way, uh, centralized. And the way we accomplish decentralization is we pool together node resources from the community on the backside and then introduce governance into that process. To answer your question, yes, the developer experience really starts with an RPC endpoint. The RPC endpoint is frankly just pulling in the official method calls that are available in the node client. So Go Ethereum has a set of methods. You can look them up. They're usually ETH underscore something like Git logs is one that's commonly used to pull on-chain data or ETH underscore call is usually used to send transactions or pull some kind of information off the chain. And those are the standard. And then as you go into the Aragon node client, Aragon has a few method calls that aren't available in the Go Ethereum client. And then ultimately what we've seen with Alchemy, Infura, and now with Anchor as well, is these these, uh, services or protocols are starting to build their own method calls to, to make the developer experience easier, right? And so there's like an NFT, the one that's become been popular as an nft lookup it just makes it easier to pull some of the information around you know nft the smart contract who owns an nft maybe even the images on ipfs that are associated with that nft and so i think long term increasingly 
while these, these uh, we'll call them node infrastructure, or developer infrastructure, will really start with the same methods that you can get from running your own node, but will increasingly start building their own method calls as well to improve the developer experience. So when I want to hit one of these networks, Ethereum, for example, why wouldn't I just use the out-of-the-box experience for accessing the Ethereum network? Maybe you could contrast the out-of-the-box Ethereum experience with what yeah. something like Anchor, Anchor offers because you, you have your own system of accessing these endpoints. When we launch it, our, what Anchor Protocol offers is just direct access. We are, we are kind of in the final stages of launching a decentralized API that expands those method calls. I think the biggest thing is that these calls are very rudimentary. And so I'll give you an example. We built a, a multi-chain block explorer called anchorscan.io. You can visit it in your web browser. It's still in beta. But for you know a team of three engineers that took about four months of building like a standard of, of historical, of frankly, calls to you know build a historical view of the multi-chain space. And something we're going to be offering in the next in the coming weeks is an API that takes those four months of, of time it took to build all those calls to go multi-chain and just make it available in one single method call to like load a, a you know historical transactions and trace those back. And there, there's a lot of really comes down to efficiency, right? And so you know, you can definitely in a decentralized system, you can use what's available through the node client, but there are increasingly tools to make that experience better. And that just improves time to market, right? We're seeing we're seeing a lot, uh, you know, crypto is moving very fast. There's a lot of Web2 engineers that are moving into the space and starting to get started. And I think we'll see as these newer APIs come to market, they ultimately, you know, make it simpler to build Web3 applications and, and dApps. And so we should see more innovation and faster innovation happen because of that. Can you go in, in a little more detail? Like if I hit, so you have rpc.anchor.com slash ETH, for example, yep. for yep. hitting the Ethereum network. What is actually happening when I hit that endpoint? Can you give me like a breakdown of the call stack? Yeah. Yeah. First of all, for like DDoS protection and whatnot, we are using Cloudflare to kind of mitigate some of the risk because that's an open endpoint. One of the advantages of using that endpoint is you don't really need a sign up. You don't need to put a credit card in or anything like that. It's a free community service. And certainly, you know, with you use the anchor token, you can scale it beyond the limits of the free service. But uh, we see a lot of MetaMask users also plugging that into MetaMask or another type of, you know, some other standalone custodian self custody wallet. So you can use that in a wallet app as well as if you're an engineer kind of building an application. When you call that, like I said, we have Cloudflare in the background and we have a very, a very simple, I'll say, load balancer in place. This is very common. You'll see this in other platforms as well. Alchemy calls theirs a super node. We just you know, refer to ours as a load balancer, but frankly, it's just a cluster of nodes. And so ours is uh, geography-based which means we can offer a very low latency experience to the end user. And so if you're in a place like Argentina, 
you'll be routed to our our nodes that are running in Sao Paulo, Brazil, rather than if you you know maybe on another platform you'd be that's hosted on AWS, you might take all the subsea cables up to you know, North America, and so you know the node at the back end is just a standard node. It's going to process that request, that compute power, and then return the response back to the user. And so I think the cluster technology is really important because if a node goes down, if it, which commonly we just say it's out of block height, because in a peer-to-peer system, all the nodes have to stay in sync with each other. If you get out of block height, the node is behind the latest state of the blockchain. And then that node is automatically withdrawn from the load balancer. And so, you know, if you think about it, that's very important because maybe there's an outage. Maybe someone's running a node in AWS. AWS has an outage, which is rare, but it does happen. You know, the service isn't affected then because there's multiple providers and it has geographic diversity built into that and decentralization of providers and node providers offering nodes on the, the backside of that. So... You know, we it's it's a very resilient system and kind of preserves some of the aspects that you'll see, you know, the consensus side with validators going peer-to-peer. What kinds of applications demand lower latency access to a network like Ethereum? Like, does the average application need to be super fast or can you just, does the average application, like, can the average application tolerate just the, the basic Ethereum latency? Yeah, well, it, it really depends on how how the the developers are are integrating it. So, you know, typically transactions, I'd say the the number one use case where latency is ultra critical is when people are trying to do sniping sniping bots, which is a very small percentage of the community right now. But they they need absolutely, you know, we're talking one two milliseconds, right, where they're trying to cut as much latency off their transactions as possible. Then for users that are using DeFi, it's very important, primarily because, you know, if you're doing transactions, like the more hops that the network is taking, you know, or maybe you're accessing a node in another continent, right, then potentially your transaction error rate goes up as well. We've seen that. But I think what's also important is that a lot of developers are just integrating the RPC endpoints directly into the the front end and to the client side. And so you see like web3.js you see web3. you know for python or you know other uh, libraries and frameworks where it's all client side it's not a server side call and in that sense the user's web browser is really calling the rpc endpoint right and so potentially you know there's a lot of latency in that transact or in all those requests as data is being pulled in then the website or the d app is going to feel slower to the user Right. And so, so, you know, you probably, we've seen this kind of same thing happen in Web 2, where these investments in all these like front end technologies and making things faster with like geographic diversity have really helped the user experience. And that's what's happening right now in Web 3. So, if you look at the kinds of applications that are using Anchor, what are you seeing? Like, yeah. what kinds of DApps are are utilizing the the your RPC infrastructure? Yeah, well, we have you know customers like uh, DeFi Pulse who are pulling on chain data in for 
doing some sort of analytics and market research in that that use case is a little bit different because they're doing like server side calls and they're i believe they're running in a major cloud platform and and pulling the on-chain data directly into their application but then you see uh we we serve a lot of we're like probably the number one endpoint or rpc endpoint for phantom and we serve like spooky swap spirit swap two of the largest decentralized exchanges or commonly called DEXs on the Phantom network. There's a lot of DeFi you know, activity on Phantom. And in those cases, you know, they're frankly DApps. They're decentralized exchanges where they're connecting to the RPC and processing transactions. And we've, you know, in those cases, you're seeing, like I said earlier, you're seeing kind of the, the end user through the DApp querying against the RPC endpoint, right? And so that's a major use case. We see NFT mints using RPC. You know, maybe there's some new 10,000 NFTs that have launched. There's a mint going on. Those mints need access to an RPC endpoint. We see NFT marketplaces. Really, I guess the way to think about it is like there's definitely people that are doing server-side calls where there's some back-end process like querying data or sending transactions. But commonly, uh, we see a lot. Any Anytime there's like a connect wallet button, you know, that's... In some, in a lot of cases, those those developers will just integrate the RPC endpoint, you know, to prop to to facilitate that, right? So, um, really, I guess you could say every use case in Web three, in DeFi, in Metaverse gaming, NFTs is going to require an RPC endpoint, right? And so, this infrastructure is very fundamental. It's very necessary, you know, in, in order to facilitate that. And I will say too that I think this. In the previous six months, we've seen a lot more users and DApp developers using WebSockets, uh, specifically in mobile applications. You know, they want those concurrent connections, and that is increasingly becoming very important infrastructure to, especially in the gaming community. So, when I think about like a gaming application, if I wanted to have a game where the entire like maybe the entire game state is represented on the Ethereum blockchain, you probably would need really rapid access and, but you would also need like fast write time. So you need need both fast read and write time with an RPC system like anchor. You're, you're mostly just getting fast writes, right? You're not, you're not necessarily getting fast reads. No, you're absolutely. Sorry. You're mostly getting fast reads, not necessarily fast writes. Well, yeah, because the way that the blockchain works, right? Like you can pull data instantly off chain, right? 10, 20 milliseconds usually. But in write times, when you write a transaction, you need to pay a gas fee. And there's like a block confirmation that needs to happen before that transaction will actually be essentially included in the block. It's going to stay in the, what's called the mempool or the pending transactions. And so Ethereum is actually a very slow chain. We see Ethereum kind of has its global capacity right now is 25 transactions per second across the whole world, across all the users using Ethereum. And so that's very slow in terms of transactions. And so we see Ethereum being used more for like a trust layer. And then we see what are called layer two scaling solutions that are really running on top of Ethereum. Some names that you might be familiar are are like Polygon, which is frankly kind of running a side chain. They have some other solutions as well. We see Arbitrum. We see ZK rollups now. And these solutions, one, you know, there's many ways they're kind of being architected, but one way is that these 
secondary or layer two solutions are making it very cheap and fast to do a lot of write transactions. They kind of package that up and then they write that to the Ethereum network as a single transaction. So within that one transaction, you might have 10,000 you know, database uh, writes right on, on the layer two. And so that's one way the, the community is building and scaling, right? And so you're not going to pay, you know, a $15 gas fee or $20 gas fee every time you write to the Ethereum network. That's very impractical if you're building a game, right? And so I think, you know, we've, we've seen layer twos in the last year just completely accelerate. You know, some of them are, are processing two, three, four thousand transactions per second now. And so that's really going to be how you know, a game developer, frankly, builds on those is using the layer twos. And you still need an RPC endpoint there. The other thing I'd, I'd point out too with that is that we see like when we talk about metaverse, when we talk about games, like the games themselves are being processed, you know, using traditional technologies. I've seen games built on Roblox. I've seen games built in Unity. You know, Facebook's building their, their metaverse right now and their gaming engine. They see some games built on the Unreal engine. And what I guess what's being late, why they're being called metaverse games is because there's like play to earn elements in there where they're, you know, the game items are, are being given to players or traded to players through NFTs. And those players have like a, those items in the game, weapons, skins, whatever they are, have real monetary value that can be traded on like an open marketplace. And that's how a lot of these games are starting to take shape. At least in this con- in the Web three community. So we've talked about RPC infrastructure, at least as it pertains to Ethereum. You've got RPC protocols for Polygon, Solana, like all these other networks, like I mentioned. And can you just tell me, like, how does the engineering between those different RPC systems compare? Like, is it just you mm. copy paste basically, or are there different? No, not, not at all. Increasingly is different. So, in, in many of these chains, like what I mentioned, the layer twos that are made for Ethereum, and there's many other networks like Phantom that are called Ethereum virtual machine compatible. That means a developer can use the same, the standard met- method calls the same method calls for Phantom as they can for Ethereum. And it also means the smart contracts are more or less compatible. Of course, sometimes you have to do a little bit of modification as you go cross-chain. But when a developer goes multi-chain, picking another chain, a secondary chain to integrate with, is if it's Ethereum virtual machine compatible, that is a is an easier learning experience or easier to integrate, right? They can use a lot of the code, reuse that, and then you have chains like Near and Solana that are built. The primary language is usually Rust. The Solana methods are very different from the Ethereum, you know, communities. And they, and right at the moment, Solana is not EVM compatible or Ethereum virtual machine compatible. There there are some people working on that right now. And Near protocol has Aurora, which is working on EVM compatibility for Near. And so that, you know, makes it easier for developers that are already familiar with the Ethereum ecosystem to adopt those chains and, you know, integrate those chains into their applications. So the Ethereum compatibility, EVM compatibility, if I deploy a smart contract to the Ethereum network, then 
you know, obviously people can access that smart contract. EVM compatibility would allow somebody to also deploy that smart contract on Solana if Solana was EVM compatible. Can you just talk about the importance of EVM compatibility? It seems to be a common denominator that enables a lot of these networks to be viable. Yeah, well, I think the com- the community, I mean, the most advanced developers in the space, like you mentioned earlier, how Ethereum is about six years old now, maybe seven, depending on how we, you know, we look at that. But there's a lot of experience that has already gone into Ethereum. So you kind of have that first mover advantage on smart contracts. That helps out a lot. Long term, maybe EVM compatibility isn't that important. But at the moment, there are, I'd say the lion's share of developers are are using Solidity. You know, they're using web, libraries like Web3.js. And so a lot of the that knowledge is important for adoption. And so you see, I, I think a great like multi-chain example of like a DeFi protocol is, is beefy.finance. I know the team over there. And they've integrated, what, eight, nine, 10 different chains now, all EVM compatible. It's a great example of, you know, a platform where it wants to access more users. And so it uh, integrates a new chain. And why, why would a developer be interested in, you know, going a ch- to a chain that's not Ethereum? It's because each, we, we started seeing kind of this multi-chain space that each chain has its own community, has its own passionate users, has all these assets that are on that chain, right? So an example I'd say is like, you know, kind of you have in the, in the West, the most popular chain is Ethereum. You know, in some of the emerging markets in the East, we see a Binance smart chain now called BNB chain is definitely the chain of choice. It is it's fast, it has low gas fees. And of course you have Binance there as the major um, exchange in a lot of those emerging markets where they don't have Coinbase or Kraken or Gemini or other exchanges like that. And so if you want to reach those users in, in places like the Philippines or Thailand or Vietnam, you know, Binance Smart Chain is probably the most popular chain there. And so you would go use that chain, integrate it re- really to get access to that community over there. Do you know anything about it? Like- how these different blockchain i mean like my understanding is binance smart chain is faster than ethereum avalanche is faster than ethereum do do you have any sense of what the engineering differences between these different chains are that leads to latency differences yeah so it's i wouldn't say latency it's really about what determines a chain speed is is frankly how fast the next block on the blockchain forms and how many transactions can that block contain? That's really what defines the chain speed. Sometimes that's different than the transaction speed, but they are related. I think what the Ethereum community has tried to do is, is make it decentralized. And, and basically, it comes down to the server requirements, more or less, that power the nodes. So there's a community that runs Ethereum nodes on Raspberry Pi. You can run Ethereum node on your local machine. And that helps the decentralization of the network because the, the barrier to entry is very low. You can go get a cheap droplet in DigitalOcean or run an Ethereum node if you want. Now, in contrast, Solana is a very fast blockchain. It's currently doing, I think, about 4,000 transactions per second compared to Ethereum's 25. 
but the Solana node requirements are, you know, crazy compared to Ethereum. You're looking at an enterprise grade server, NVMe disk, 256 gigabytes of RAM minimum, even to just stay at block height on the Solana blockchain. And so the cost of that server in contrast to maybe like an Ethereum server, where Ethereum server might be $30 a month on DigitalOcean, or you can run a Raspberry Pi. Solana is probably, you're looking at, you know, $1,000 a month or $2,000 a month if you're just renting that on AWS or something. And so some of these chains that have, have frankly like traded a bit of decentralization for speed. And I think that's one reason why people are excited about building on the layer twos on Ethereum versus going to a chain like Solana is because of that preservation of the decentralization. If we go just a little bit deeper, since it seems like you're pretty well-versed in the different blockchains, at least at a high level, just going to take advantage of that a little bit. There are these, you know, there's there's a wide variety of networks like Near and Polygon and Celo and like Binance Smart Chain and Avalanche that I have heard a lot about and I've you know seen a lot of traction from these networks. And uh, you mentioned one of the axes, or you mentioned a few of the axes that these these chains can be compared on, particularly block size, which leads to faster finality, but uh, different server infrastructure requirements. Are there other ways that, like I've heard Celo is, is good for mobile payments. Are, are there other ways in which these we can compare these different blockchains to uh, have a kind of a principal component analysis of them? Yeah. Well, I think that, like I said earlier, the two main ones are going to be the speed of the network, um, also the, the, the cost of the gas fees, right? So those are related in, in a lot of cases. Solana has very cheap gas fees, right? Um, we've seen Polygon has averaged a you know a dollar less sub sub one dollar, sometimes more. Ethereum is like fifteen, twenty, thirty dollars if you're writing to a smart contract. It could be one hundred and fifty dollars per transaction. So speed of the network, the gas fees are a big thing. The node requirements definitely, the server requirements factor into that. I think the other overlooked thing sometimes is the incentives. A lot of these protocols have an ecosystem fund and they're putting this, they're almost acting like venture capitalists and they're putting money into dApps and tools and so the development of those ecosystems really accelerate the adoption of the chains and that's you know one thing that's happening avalanche has been doing a great job you know getting avalanche integrated all over the place um, obviously binance has you know the, they're the largest exchange by volume and transactions. And so they're seeing they help get BNB and BNB chain adopted everywhere. Um, whereas Ethereum, you know, is kind of like has, has this huge ecosystem because it's decentralized and no one's really controlling it. And then, you know, Solana Foundation is putting a lot of capital behind things as well. And so, you know, people kind of follow the money, I think, you know, developers can follow the money. A lot of times there's grants available for DApps you might get instead of having to raise like a early seed fund, you know, as a team, you can go to the ecosystem. You can say, hey, there's a gap in your ecosystem. I'm going to fill it. Here's our prototype. You might get a grant. Sometimes these grants are $20,000, $30,000. I've seen them go up to 500 k you know, kind of like a small seed. 
And then obviously, if you get, get that, then you get a lot of support from that foundation of community. And so, and then you might use like an NFT sale or a token sale as well and raise some more money on top of that. So incentives have a lot to do with kind of what's happening. I think, you know, Solana has been doing a great job. Like they've captured a lot of the, there's a huge backing. You have FTX behind it. You have a lot of Silicon Valley VCs behind Solana. They're, you know, using their insider connections to get adoption happening. But it's a great time to be a Web3 developer. There's so many options. I think you got to find a community. You got to find a chain to start with that really you feel connected to the community. And then you can go multi-chain as you get traction and really build a user base. So you're saying that the average application wants to be on a variety of blockchains? Well, I think it... it, it Frankly, I mean, if you think about it, let's just think about this use case. You de- Let's say you develop on Avalanche. So maybe I develop a DApp on Avalanche. I've only integrated Avalanche. I'm limited to the total capital that's on Avalanche. Now there's some bridges and some you know, cross-chain things that can help users, but that's really kind of limited to, I'd say, DeFi power users that are really going to use any kind of bridges to bridge assets from Ethereum to Avalanche. Keep in mind, all these blockchains are siloed, right? So if you have assets on on Avalanche and you want to go to Ethereum, if you're not going to use a, a, cro- a cross-chain bridge, you got to sell those assets, which triggers a taxable event in the US at least. And then, you know, you're going to trade those for ETH, right? And so a lot of times you want to, uh, as a DApp developer, you want to go where the money is, right? And so We've seen, you know, like platforms like OpenSea that started on Ethereum. Now they have Polygon. Polygon is helping with the lower DAS fees, right? On on there, you see, you know, some of the games or platforms will pick two different chains to start with and then go from there. So, you know, it's like in Web3, money is kind of embedded in the experience. It's embedded in the infrastructure. So you got to think about, you know, wallet access. Where are my users going to be? You know, long term, I think these problems of of having to pick what chain you want to go on will get easier and easier as some of the the cross chain, multi chain bridges get better and the wallet technology gets better. Uh, but for now, you know, it's still pretty early on, and you you kind of have to pick. And I see, see, you know, most developers in the United States, at least, especially in kind of the traditional like Silicon Valley influence tech crowd or start with Ethereum. It definitely is like a kind of a rich person's network with the higher gas. But, you know, you start with that, you get access to Ethereum community, and then you start branching out into a layer two or, you know, one of these other chains. If we zoom out from just the RPC systems that you've built, there are other pieces of infrastructure that you've you've worked on so well i guess we should just talk about like the anchor token and explain in more detail what the token actually does can you describe what what the purpose of the token is and and what it actually empowers yeah for the anchor token we've been so first and foremost our token is about four years old right now traditionally but prior to like october 2021 we really just used it in a for governments, it wasn't widely used. What we're moving to is a all of the protocol revenue is now tracked through the token, and then the token is paid out to the independent node providers. So 
kind of money in through the token, money out through the token. And then we're working on some features where you can kind of lock that token up. And it's almost like an Amazon Prime style membership where by locking the token, you maintain ownership of the token, though it's locked and it gives you exclusive access to some benefits, right? And so developers, instead of having to pay a monthly fee for something, you know, they're going to be able to stake the token or lock it in that case. And instead of earning like passive earnings, get access to a feature in the product. And then obviously, as I talked earlier about the Anchor DAO, we can use the token to submit governments. We're going to use snapshot.org. We're also looking at Aragon in the future to really bolster that community and, and make it easier to do governance on that and you know get get users of the product engaged through the through the token. But ultimately I think the token in a, in a web3 business model you the token is essentially what makes people excited about ownership, about being engaged and it's, uh, frankly that the rise of that token. So I'm a product manager, one of the hardest parts of web3 especially in building a protocol is when you have a token. It's easier to build a centralized service provider for web3 whether you're serving data or you know even building RPC endpoints, but building a product where there's a micro economy at the base of it, there's a lot of math, there's a lot of economics, and unlike software features, when you build uh, tokenomics and how the token is integrated and distributed to users, that's kind of a, a feature that is very hard to unwind or change, right? And so. I think there's there's been some protocols out there that have gone, they've done it very fast. They made some mistakes and it's really came back to bite them. We've taken a much more conservative aspect of rolling out the token in kind of stages and being very, very slow, but also, in my opinion, doing it right on the decentralization and transitioning to a decentralized model. There's not really a playbook for tokenomics yet. You know, there's a very a defined playbook, I think, for building like a Web2 company these days or software as a service, for example. But when you integrate a token, it's a completely different dynamic. And there's also, you know, a lot of great area in the regulatory environment of how these these things can progress. So, you know, more to more to come on the token. So if I look at the most successful blockchains, typically there's like kind of a like a like a slow ramp up to the network being recognized as being important like it it, it doesn't usually doesn't uh, happen overnight that the a network gets gets widely adopted so i i'd love to get a sense for how the growth has progressed over time with anchor and uh, how your infrastructure has has scaled in response to that yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I think I think the thing to think about if you zoom out, like you said, and look at kind of the macro thing, it's very hard to build. It's very hard. You might be familiar with the concept of product market fit. It's, you know, when you really build that that the right product for a market and it's kind of feels like it's flying off the shelf, so to speak. You're getting adoption, you're getting traction, you don't have to work too hard to sell it. Product market fit is um historically has been built by very small focused teams. And in the Web3 community, building product market fit is very difficult to do with a decentralized community, trying to organize a community around building something. And so what I see a lot of uh, you know projects like Anchor or Compound have done is they've built a centralized service with a small focused team. 
they get they get product market fit and then they begin handing off pieces to the community right and facilitating governance and that and as you do that as you get the community engaged community gets excited about it and usually you should see a snowball effect happening we've seen that with anchor i think we're still early days in 2021 in the calendar year we saw 20x traffic growth we ended the year with doing around 200 a billion with a B requests to the blockchain from our users on our RPC endpoints across all of our RPC endpoints. And we started the year, you know, what, under 10 billion in early 2021. A lot of that came from the growth in DeFi, in NFTs, in decentralized exchanges. And I, I, I think this year I told my team that our goal is to get to 1 trillion, which I think is going to be easy for us this year. 1 trillion monthly requests to the blockchain. A lot of that's going to come through games. We have several games building on our RPC endpoints right now, integrating NFTs into traditional games that are already available, you know, in the App Store and the Google Play Store and on mobile. And so those will use a lot more requests. And, and certainly requests are just one way to measure, I guess, growth because, you know, it varies widely based on the use case of the D app or the game you know, that's integrating into that, but it is one good mech to show. And I think, you know, we've seen in the last year, to answer your second question around infrastructure, to go back to the the concept of infrastructure to power that growth, right? Like we do have about 30% of our nodes at the moment that are served by the community and contribute to decentralization, but Anchor still runs about 70% of our nodes. Our goal is to, you know, fully turn those over to the community but as the server requirements, especially for chains like Solana, have increased, you know, the average like sysadmin that's, you know, has a full-time job and is running nodes on the side, or maybe it's a, we have several DAOs that run nodes for us, like they don't know how to go out and get, you know, servers out of the supply chain. And so we've helped them in a lot of cases do that. We've, uh, frankly, we built a custom server. We do everything on bare metal. At least when we help provide those node providers with with hardware, we build a custom server. When I say custom, it's a custom configuration. We're not obviously we're not like the scale where we're inventing our own CPU or or modifying ARM architecture or anything like that. But we built our our custom bare metal server, and that just means it's a it's a server. It's running in a standard data center, you know, right down the hallway from where AWS runs their servers and you know, powering traffic. And I think that's a a good model for the community. My background, I've worked at many infrastructure as a service companies prior to being in Web3. And it gives us a huge advantage cost-wise over uh, platforms like Infura and Alchemy that run exclusively on AWS. And so it makes it very easy for us to kind of plug and play nodes into our load balancers because they can be ran from any, any anywhere in the world as long as there's good hardware. As we draw to a close... Can you talk about some of the other uh, systems that Anchor has built, just particularly around DeFi infrastructure? In addition to our RPC endpoints and our developer APIs, we also have what's called uh, liquid staking. Liquid staking is really when you stake. So first of all, if, if you're not familiar with what staking is, Staking, you know, a lot of the earlier chains like Bitcoin use proof of work. They use all those, the miners. Proof of stake doesn't use miners. It uses a financial mechanism to help maintain consensus and frankly, security as well on the blockchain. So in the case of Ethereum, that means every Ethereum validator, which 
takes the place of Ethereum miners. And there's once Ethereum fully transitions to proof of stake, hopefully later this year, you know, all the Ethereum miners will be obsolete. And then the Ethereum validators will take over building consensus. And, and what is going to happen in that case is that when you launch an Ethereum validator, you need 32 ETH that is staked, locked up for each validator. And so we've seen since December 2020, when, when you know, Ethereum started transitioning to this beacon chain, as it's called, you know, we've had about 60,000 Ethereum that have been staked across you know, almost 2,000 validators or, or, or so, 32 ETH per validator. The community, we built kind of a decentralized solution where the community can run some of the validators. We call them sidecars and contribute to the decentralization of that. But ultimately, it means that you are issued by Anchor a liquid staking token that represents your stake in the network. And so what this allows you to do is kind of exit your stake at any time. So when you stake on Ethereum, at least as, as of you know March 2022 here, your deposit, if you will, is going to be it's going to be locked until Ethereum transitions to proof of stake. So we don't know when that's going to happen. It's been delayed several times. When you have a liquid staking token, you can sell your stake or exit your position at any time by just selling your liquid staking token, and which is linked to your underlying deposit. And so that's what liquid staking is. We compete with other platforms like Lido.finance or Lido, as they're commonly known as. That's another liquid staking solution out there smart contract based but there's other reasons to use liquid staking as well because you know there's a lot of incentives now in the in the defi community and indexes you can take your liquid staking token and then join it into a liquidity pool provide liquidity earn sometimes farming rewards in that case or even borrow against it if you're you know if you're into that and so we see early on when if, when liquid staking started and Ethereum staking, I think the price of Ethereum was around like four or $500 per ETH. Now it's a lot more expensive, right? And so the other solution that liquid staking allows us to, to do is to create micro pools for staking. And so if you're staking with Anchor, I think that you can stake with like a minimum of 0.5 ETH now and, you know, on the product instead of having the full 32 ETH. And keep in mind that this is like a, a DeFi-based solution. You use your self-custodian wallet you know, to do this and all that versus if you were uh, staking with Coinbase. You know, frankly, Coinbase doesn't have liquid staking and it's a centralized you know, service. They kind of have all your ETH as your custodian in that sense. So you know, we're, we're really DeFi native in that, in that sense. So we are, we're expanding to other chains. We, we launched Polygon, we launched Phantom, and now Binance uh, chain as well, the same type of solution. But I think we'll see liquid staking kind of be used in a lot of really interesting ways in the future. There's some ways we can kind of integrate it with the developer tools as well. That's exciting, but coming on a roadmap later this year. Can you just before we close off, talk a little bit more about staking. And if I'm comparing different places where I can stake my money, why wouldn't I always just choose the highest ROI place to stake to stake my coins? Is, is there some is there a risk when I stake tokens? Well, yes. In proof of stake, there's always risk because if you stake to a validator that is malicious 
that meaning that validator starts like trying to fudge or fake transactions on the network, that validator could be slashed by the network, which would mean the underlying deposits would be lost or would be slashed. There'd be they'd be minimized or some some of the deposit would be taken, frankly. So there's always risk when staking. I think the reputation of the protocol or the platform matters a lot in that. For people that just want to stake and you know forget about it, honestly, like if my dad was like, "Hey, where where should I where should I stake?" I'd probably just say stake in Coinbase. You know, if you, if you don't care, you want to keep it locked up for the next year potentially on Ethereum, then stake there. It's going to be simple for you. All of that for DeFi users, though, you know, products like and what Anchor has done. Uh, with what we call Anchor Earn now is is a great solution because you can get added added benefit through yield farming in liquidity pools and have that instant liquidity as well. So there's some exciting news we have in the future. We've done some some partnerships in the past where we've had we've had uh, extra incentives that have taken the APR on the asset, you know, from like six seven percent up to 15, 20, 30 percent, right? And, you know, those rewards are only available if you use like a true DeFi-based staking solution. And that's, you know, a big reason why you'd want to do it. But if you don't care about DeFi and you don't want to maximize or 100% maximize, you know, your rewards, you know, centralized platform is fine, I guess, in that sense. Well, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show and exploring a variety of blockchains and staking and other subjects that we explored, very interesting platform that Anchor is developing into. Yeah, protocol. Trying to get out of the, the platform terminology. Sorry, protocol. Tran- <laughs> transition to a protocol. But yes, thank you so much for having me. You know, we're excited. Again, you mentioned it earlier, but if you're a developer, we have these uh, RPC endpoints. You don't need to sign up for anything. They're available out there to the public and you can start playing around with the blockchain. We got some tutorials now whole developer section on our documentation. So, and certainly, you know, we have community channels too. If, if anyone has a question about the app development, we can always point you in the right direction on our community channels. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you.